Hi everyone, I'm Sandy McPherson. I'm the founder of Quib, and with me is Anna Marie. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Clifton. I'm a product manager at Yammer, which is part of the Microsoft Office suite. So today we are doing a little bit of a review of a recent reading of The Inmates Are Running the Asylum, Why High-Tech Products Drive Us Crazy and How to Restore the Sanity, written by Alan Cooper, just over a decade ago, it was published in 2004. The title is a little bit non-standard. He's talking about how the high-tech industry has inadvertently put programmers and engineers in charge, and so that their hard-to-use engineering culture is the one that dominates and the one that drives how products are created. Despite appearances, business executives are just not in control anymore, even though that's what you would assume, and it's the engineers themselves who are actually running the show. In a rush to accept the many benefits of the future of technology, we've accidentally abdicated the responsibilities to developers, which he's calling the inmates, hence the name, we've let the inmates run the asylum. Okay, so moving along, so we're going to jump into our points. So both of us have picked uh, what we think were the most interesting and relevant to us, sort of lessons or points or opinions throughout the book. And we as, don't know. Yeah, we don't. I don't. I have no idea what Anna Marie picked. Uh, Anna Marie does not know which ones I chose. So these discussions are completely unscripted. So let's see where this goes. So the first one that I chose that I thought was most interesting was how Cooper talks about the importance of communication. He, he basically doesn't stop talking about it throughout the whole book, how it's very important when you start working on a project or a certain feature or an entire product together with a team, it's extremely important to start from first principles in terms of what are the actual words that you're using mm -hmm. and what do they mean and what do people think that they mean. And he talks about how in some situations he's worked on products where there's an unknown discontinuity where people have one understanding of a term that they think is, you know, that's what they think the word means. And it, it turns out that it's actually very different from other people's understanding of that word. I had no idea you were going to pick this. This is oh, yeah? not on my list. <laughs> well, I think there was, so one of the reasons why I picked this one is because I've actually had this problem. Mm. I was working with a designer. I was trying to give him feedback on some mock-ups. And what kept happening is the changes that I was expecting and asking for mm. just weren't happening. And mm. I was really confused. I was like, why is this mm. not happening? I've asked him many times. And it was difficult because I was traveling at the time. And so I was doing it all over email with screenshots. And it was a little bit difficult. But... It turns out that the word that I was using, unbeknownst to me, someone who doesn't have a design background, meant something else. Hmm. I kept using this word, which he thought meant something else, right. which I thought meant something else. And so it led to probably an added one to two hours of back and forth mm -hmm. over email, sharing screenshots. And it was a gesture-based thing, too. So it was like hard to like show uh, right. without being there in person. It was, it's like scarred in my memory. <laughs> it's like an uncomfortable interaction. Yeah. Um, and it was, be, it was, it was exactly this thing. And so when he talked about this, I was like, yes, that is so important because it caused so many problems. And this was just with me and one other person. Right, right. So the added levels of how much more complicated that gets once you have multiple people with different backgrounds. Mm who potentially have their own understandings of those terms. Mm -hmm. I, I can't even imagine how many problems that could create. Well, this is interesting. I haven't experienced this in the Yammer org within Microsoft, but I, I was actually listening to a talk by, I think, the head of research at Intercom talking mm -hmm. about this being a problem at mm -hmm. their org, somewhere around like 150 people, where 
they ended up doing an exercise where they had everyone sketch out what they were thinking instead of using words because words were getting so much in the way. And then they found those points of continuity and gave them terms and then kind of decided as an org, like, here are the terms for these things. And that was a big org exercise they did because they had just kind of grown up to the point where people were using all kinds of different words for things and they weren't even sure what areas they were talking about across the org. Yeah, I had a discussion with someone recently about this idea around you have empathy for your users mm-hmm. and you try to understand where they're coming from and their perspectives and their how they experience the world. But as a designer, you might not apply that same stance and perspective to your colleagues. Mm. And you often maybe aren't as empathetic as you could be to your colleagues. What are their experiences? What is their history? Would they have been exposed to this? And how would they think about this? It's interesting because I think it's one of those things that designers can definitely do well because they've, they've proven it before. But yeah. it's just like, how do you shift that to another part of of your role. So what Cooper talks about here is just how important it is. He believes that for people working on the design of products, your most important goal should be to make sure that you're very clear and you're very explicit in terms of what it is that you're building and the product that you and your team are making together. Awesome. My first point is actually around this concept of the Homologicus? Yeah. How do you say it? <laughs> Homolog... Lo- I don't know. Logicus? Homologicus. L-O-G-I-C-U-S. Yeah. Sure. Homologicus. Sure. And I think this is a really interesting framing to think about what mindset people come to the development process with. And the thing that I thought was most interesting about that is that, I mean, this book was written a decade ago. And one of the things that he campaigns for throughout the book is a shift in the way that we do the development process where design should happen before engineering and it should be done by people whose job it is to think that way. And I've seen that change in the past decade. I think we have shifted in that direction and I'm sure we can talk more about that. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I have not noticed is people speaking about developers this way or thinking about the fact that the way that developers operate really does indicate a different mental paradigm that they operate under. I mean, that has really informed a lot of the way that I interact with developers on my team when I think about the things that are gonna matter to them because of what they have to do all day, thinking about edge cases and working on the extremes. And so, sorry, so you're saying that, how he's talking about and describing this developer mindset, Mm -hmm. you hadn't heard before? I had not, before this book, this is Mm -hmm. kind of the first time that it was really painted in that way where Mm -hmm. it's almost like a badge of honor for a developer to have understood something really complicated. So therefore, of course, they're gonna tend towards complicating things because that makes a lot more sense to them. There's this concept of wanting the program to be more about mastery and being less homo sapien driven about the development process that I thought was just a really interesting way to think about the fact that if you're in this mindset all day and you're doing this kind of work, of course it's gonna impact the way that you think about the world. Sure. And since it does impact the way you think about the world, it should impact the way that I interact with you. Sure. So this was also one, so surprise, this was also gonna be one of my points or a similar point around just his perspective on developers and how their way of perceiving problems and coming up with solutions, they just basically have a different toolkit Mm -hmm. than any other role. The skills that they have are just different from everybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he talks about also how they're oftentimes the most valuable. We continue to see that today where, I mean, developers have the highest salaries. Right, the skill set is the most valuable skill set. They're often perceived of as being most valuable when it comes to building software. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I mean, I think it was interesting because I think, again, it sort of comes back to that first point, I think, about empathy where the developers have this capacity to, it sounds a little bit strange, but like they can empathize with what does it take to make a computer Mm. function well? 
Right. And like, what does it take to make a computer run smoothly and to operate at like its highest capacity, Mm -hmm. which potentially could be something that's not even on a checklist Mm -hmm. that a designer would even run through in terms of thinking about what's important to them. One of the interesting points that he made somewhere towards the beginning of the book is that the efficiencies of computer programming and the ways that different orgs won out over other orgs used to be based on how efficient the programmers could be in terms of CPU, in terms of like making your program operate faster. You know, in the 1970s, that was the differentiating factor that established if your product was gonna win because it was so expensive, computing power was so expensive. And as computing power has gotten less and less expensive, that core skill has become less meaningful. Like we're not maxing out our CPUs on our MacBook Airs, <laughs> no matter how many Photoshop and Illustrator programs we're running. I mean, obviously we can, but it's, it's much less important. And so now we have the freedom to focus more on the user experience. And that, I think that's interesting to think about, like, where the genesis of these fields came from. Yeah, because yeah, he talks about, like, just, again, getting back to first principles and being like, why are we working this way? Mm-hmm. And does this make sense anymore, considering the current restraints and resources that we have access to? Does it make sense to focus on speed or stability or, like, which one of these actually makes sense anymore mm-hmm. versus if you believe that design is the thing that you need to sort of tether your company to? then maybe those things don't actually matter. So the next point that I thought was really interesting um, that he spends a fair amount of time on, if you tend to follow your customers' requests Mm -hmm. too often and cause them to basically lead your product development Mm -hmm. cycle, you'll become a services-driven company because you're simply fulfilling the needs and actions that your customers are asking of you. Right. I thought it was interesting because, yeah, he, t- he talks about how if, if you do it that way, then your customers basically take control of the product's design. You have no power anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's true that, I mean, when you interact with your users and they're telling you what they want, I mean, they're being truthful. They're not lying. They have no, like, ulterior motive to try to destroy <laughs> right. the product or the company. Right. But the thing is, is that they aren't able to also extract themselves from what is their perspective, how do they use it, what are right. their standard use cases versus what is this broader thing that is a company that has a product or two. Again, from my perspective, it's like fairly, I'm doing air quotes right now, fairly easy because making those decisions gets me talking to the customers. Mm -hmm. Like the game of telephone is not very long versus it's one thing that I think is interesting with larger companies where I have trying to understand how you would relate the vision Mm -hmm. of this company as a CEO of like a 10,000 person company, Mm -hmm. which has like multiple different products, which then underneath that has multiple, each of those have multiple different features. How do you actually ensure that these people are not, because in theory they're closer to the customer than they are to the CEO oftentimes. And so how do you balance this problem around like, okay, well I'm hearing all this stuff from these customers, Mm -hmm. they want all this stuff, but how do I maintain like true north to what the CEO, like the mission that's being set and how, to me, I'm just like, wow, that's like a totally different CEO role than, than what I do. I think about this one a lot. This is the classic, listen to what your customers need, not what they tell you kind of problem. And one of the things that Cooper points out is that the customers, while they don't have malicious intent, they don't have the best interest of the longevity of your company in mind. Um, even though you're adding features, it becomes more and more shoehorned to like particular use cases uh, and less open to kind of longevity, basically. This comes true a lot in the, the Microsoft, specifically Yammer. Uh, we do a lot of customer studies. We do a lot of site visits. We do a lot of usability studies and have people come on site for just open exploration. 
And we always leave time for people to say what they're interested in at the end, even if we're driving towards a particular feature we're doing some usability on. And one of the things that I've picked up from our user research team that I really admire is they'll take what the customer asks for and they'll dig down two to three levels as to why the customer is asking for that. For example, we have some customers who are asking for the ability to automatically delete a group when it's inactive. Hmm. Why, why does that matter? There's some really interesting question at the bottom of like, well, why do you want to be deleting that group? And after digging into it a few levels, you find that the people that are asking for this, they want the ability to report up in their org because they're being judged based on how active their Yammer groups are. And it's harder for them to pull reports and it makes them look bad when mm. there are inactive groups that are perhaps seasonal or for whatever reason are no longer completely active, even though there's tons of really active groups in their network. And so digging into the core of like, oh, you're looking for reporting issues because this is difficult for you in your job. And so that's a, like a pretty classic example of trying to understand why someone wants that, because you would never understand from users want to delete groups after they're inactive that no, people want better reporting features. That's sure. You're just not going to draw that connection. Sure. So another point that Cooper makes that I thought was interesting, it goes a little bit back to this idea of sort of the mindset of, you know, most standard engineers and developers around features and specifically feature creep. How it's pretty common for developers to enjoy adding features to products. Hmm. He gives an example of a Swiss army knife. And he talks about how with a Swiss army knife, you know, when you're designing a Swiss army knife in terms of like features being like the different blades or whatever you can add, you can only fit so <laughs> many blades <laughs> until it's so big that it's no longer a Swiss army knife. It's like right. a piece of artillery. Right. And so, <laughs> so he talks about how um, with, with that paradigm, it's really easy to see, whoa, this thing can basically take over the universe now. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't need to do that mm -hmm. versus with software you can sort of like oh just you know add another menu and like shuffle them all over there and like oh we'll put these ones on this menu but then what ends up happening is you add more features because you know maybe your users are confused or you're following your your customer feedback too closely a bunch of different reasons but then the end result is you end up with something that is extremely complex what happens is the core use cases you know the 80 20 like 80 percent of what people want to use your product for becomes really difficult to find mm -hmm. and they actually now have trouble doing the core actions anymore yeah and this is, I mean, this becomes especially true in, I mean, we're kind of enterprise SaaS product where mm -hmm. we ship browserware, right? Like it's available in the browser. <laughs> That's one of Cooper's terms, browserware. Mm -hmm. So we're not constrained to any kind of boxed or on-prem model. It's really easy to extend things and add more. It's intangible. We can ship every day, right? And one of the things that we've done here at Yammer to incentivize against that, as often as we celebrate shipping features, we also test removing features. Everyone gets laptop stickers when you ship a feature. It's a fun thing to design. And then everyone on the team gets one. And we design stickers for when we remove a feature as well. Mm, nice. And so we do, we put some cultural incentives around remembering that removing things, although it's very difficult, it can be really painful because even if you've got 2% of your users using that feature, that can be a shit ton of users. Yeah. And taking that thing from them, especially if it's part of their workflow, like you really need to make sure that you're supporting their workflow in other ways. For me, again, with like much smaller number of people using my product, but I removed a feature. I, I mean, I've removed several, but there was this one that I removed and it was interesting because there were two users who were like, I would call them like power users. <laughs> and their use of the product was also like highly focused on this feature. Hmm. And 
they were literally the only two people. <laughs> and so what was interesting was, like, I knew I, they were both these two guys. And, like, I knew them personally. Oh, man. And so I had to email them. And I was like, hey, sorry, but you're this the is only going ones. away. <laughs> and it was hard in a different kind of way because I was just, oh, like, I know you. You were one of the first, like, 40 people to use Quib. Like, I really mm. like you. You've given me a lot of great advice. I'm going to take away this thing that is basically how you use the whole thing. Mm. It was also difficult, though, yeah. but in a very different kind of way. Could you talk about what the feature was? The feature was you could look at links that you had recently shared on Twitter. Then it would take out the link and you could then choose to share that link on Quib. So like an import feature, basically. Yeah. So one of the points that Cooper made that really resonated with me is the fact that when a user starts a product, they're a beginner. And nobody likes being a beginner. That's a really painful place to be. People want to get past that really quickly and to a place of comfort. And once you get past that beginner stage and you're in this intermediate place of comfort, some users will be incentivized to go all the way to the other end of the spectrum and become experts. But expertise is oftentimes also a time-boxed thing where you're only an expert in Excel for like the number of years that you're using Excel. And then if you stop using it for a couple of years, you like slide back out of your expertise or you know the product evolves past you, your expertise, or you're no longer keeping current on it. So he points out that there's kind of this magnetism in the spectrum of use where you always kind of end up as an intermediate user of a product. That's the bulk of users. Conversely, developers and designers and internal users of our own product, we have a tendency to design and build for these expert users because we are our own expert users very often uh, and we enjoy that kind of use case. It's a very powerful use case. And this again goes back to the homologians concept or the homologicus. <laughs> I cannot say that word, logicus. <laughs> so going back to the homologicus concept of wanting to exert mastery, wanting to build for mastery and wanting users to feel that way. So you have that end of the spectrum where you're putting most of your development work. And then at the same time, your marketing org is putting most of their effort into the beginner side of the world. How to do the very first thing here and come join and set up your first project or get in and here's you know your how-to onboarding stuff. Most of your efforts around marketing and development go toward the ends of the spectrum that are not where your users are. And he didn't really propose any solutions yeah. here. I was wondering how you think about this, Sandy, what you've seen with this. Well, the other thing that I thought was interesting was that people understand that, yeah, there's like people who come into your product who you have to do some sort of education, some sort of hand-holding around mm -hmm. like, what is this? Why are you using this? What what happens here? How do you make these actions happen? Whereas other people will be familiar with the design paradigm that your product replicates and can sort of get an idea of what's how to use it. Mm -hmm. But I think that his point that I thought was more interesting in that section of the book was how he talks about this idea that I think oftentimes we sort of paint users existing only in an instant in time. Hmm. And how actually, you know, this beginner, they're not going to be a beginner forever. Like they're going to eventually become an intermediate user. And he talks about this idea of how we could potentially design products that do that, that evolve with the user over time. So hmm. once you are sort of like leveling up over time in terms of how you use the product. So right. once you start using it, you go through the onboarding flow, you know, you've logged in every few days, you've taken a certain key action a certain number of times. He sort of suggests, like, why not keep track of all of that? Right. And then, you know, do some slight, like, nuanced changes to the interface as the person engages with it to better reflect how they're now using it. Yeah. And this is a concept, I mean, you said level up, which is 
I think, kind of interesting because this is a really common concept in gaming, mm. this emergent complexity where as users complete the first level, usually they're learning base, very core concepts to the game, and then every level there's a new like level of complexity that's added, uh, which keeps you engaged. It keeps you excited and happy and involved, and that's really core to an effective gaming product. I haven't seen a bunch of non-gaming products approach this very well. That's something we talk a lot about at Yammer and we're working on right now, is ways to bring more emergent complexity into the product. Yeah, because I think all it is right now, like most of what you see is like the first couple times you log in, you'll get tooltips yeah and then you don't get them anymore right oh god i hate tooltips <laughs> side <laughs> note sort of it. <laughs> i hate tooltips i think tooltips are the worst things <laughs> in the world I, th I think i've seen one implementation of tooltips that i thought was a well done yeah and uh, other than that i've dismissed them every it's single time yeah. it's a design paradigm i'm not a fan of yes but then there's there's some there's some elements of emerging complexity that I've seen people struggle with. I, I I'm trying to remember what the product was, but I remember you were trying to do something at one point and couldn't couldn't find the area of the product that it was in. Mm -hmm. It was something that I knew, and I was like, oh, it's right here. It's like when you hover on this oh, yes. first area, yes. it exposes the yes. secondary like the yeah. hierarchical. Oh yeah, option. exactly. Yeah. So there was this product, and they had you, you can make lists, and I wanted to make a heading of a list. And it turns out that when you're hovering over the heading, like if you push a certain key, it will then like tr magically transform right. into a heading. Or if you're hovering over the add item to list, another button will appear yeah. for add heading. Yeah. But in my mind, I was like, why would I hover there? That was not what I was doing. That was not my right. flow in terms of making a list. It is hinting at what he's talking about here, which is like, how do you build these like super user features? Right, like just in time um, kind of stuff. Yeah, but that was just a poor <laughs> implementation. <laughs> Another thing that Cooper mentioned is one that I actually disagreed with. Oh! oh. <laughs> a little bit disagree with. I'm not going to be super strong on that opinion. It's something that also you hear oftentimes this idea of iterate and <laughs> I have this exact note. Oh, you do? I'm disagreeing. Oh, with okay. Nice. Disagree. Nice. He doesn't think iterative shipping is good for users. Yeah. So I think the, the idea that he talks about specifically that I disagree with is this practice that's common now where you put up a super shitty like landing page, like a really janky version of your app. And the idea is like you put it out there, you learn, you watch how these people interact with your product, you make tweaks, blah, blah, blah. So again, this like lean startup, like iterative cycle thing which we all know but what he says is he talks about how he does not like that approach because he believes what happens is you end up with a biased pool of people who are then using your product mm -hmm. and so once you sort of scare away all of these homo sapiens i guess is or these yeah, like, like the non common user yeah. like the non-power user yeah they sort of get scared away and then you end up, you don't know it, but your pool is tainted by all of these people who are these apologists and who are these people who are like, oh, I'll just, you know, put up with this because like it's a really powerful thing and it's mm -hmm. really great. And I'm like happy to use it, even though the design is bad. But I think what's interesting there is that I think one of the things that I question around this is, again, thinking about when this book was written. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, yeah. assuming it was written, yeah, like it was published in 2004, it was written, you know, 2002, 2003, probably. Mm -hmm. Then... I think that probably 
your like total addressable market for a lot of these products was drastically smaller than what it is today. Interesting. And so I wonder yeah. if like what he's talking about, like if you built a certain type of product back in 2002, mm-hmm. you probably did have to be a little bit careful about who you were hmm. promoting it to, who, you know, your sales people were calling, because maybe at that point in time, your market was much smaller than what it is today. Whereas today I'm like a huge believer in you need to just get something out there, get people trying it, probably the people who are using it are replaceable with other people Hmm. and probably those people are not going to have an impact on whatever it is that you do next so i disagree with that premise there so i also had this point that he doesn't think iterative shipping is good for users and i was like i disagree with this i also think that it's specific to his era Uh, i think that that's very indicative of why he's thought of this but the reason why i is different from what your reason why is the reason why i think it's very different and the era is so important is because he's really talking about a boxed software environment Mm. where when he's figuring out what's good for users the way he describes it is these usability tests where you bring users in and see how they work with it and then you do another iteration he did not once not even one time never even once talk about data and talk about analyzing what people actually doing in the product and so one thing that you can do now if you have a product out there that people use a little bit and get scared away from is you can see what's scaring them away right and so he had no way to really incorporate that in his learning and so i think that the it's actually fundamentally different now because you can watch what users are doing and when they stop coming back. And that's just the beauty of the current data-informed environment. I was really surprised at how infrequently, or I mean, he literally never mentioned data. Did you notice that? Yeah, I don't think he did. Yeah, not even once. Yeah. And it's something that's so fundamental to how I think about product management. It's so fundamental to how we work here at Yammer. I know for you as well, in founding your own company, you look at what people are actually doing. And when you get the real-time feedback like that, you can ship iteratively based on things that you're seeing like, oh shit, my leaky bucket is leaky here. Mm -hmm. Let me patch up this hole in my onboarding experience that will help users overcome something tricky here. So I think the addressable market is, I mean, I hadn't thought about that point. I think that's not invalid, but I don't think that's the main point. Yeah, interesting. He talked a lot about using personas, specific personas with named people who were identified as paradigms of your ideal user. Have you been in an environment that used personas? Because I have not actually used personas ever. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And it's something, I, I think he, he talks a lot about how he wants to shift the design process to being more forefront before engineering. And the way that he talks about getting there, I think perhaps happened before I got into product management. And now we just do the design first. And like we were very interaction design heavy at the beginning, but not super informed by a lot of these processes that he was hoping to use to get it in the first place. Mm. So I have created personas for Quib. I have a running Google Doc that has some personas hmm. in it. Um, How many personas? Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's maybe four oh, okay. of them. Huh. There's not many. But I do find it, for me, again, because I'm in sort of like a weird situation where it's just me, Mm -hmm. I'm like so in the weeds and Mm -hmm. so like it's so difficult sometimes to, you know, forest in the trees for me because Mm -hmm. I do all of the things. I'm not like an employee even. Like that level of distance from the product Mm -hmm. is like extreme compared to like my experience right right (laughs) and so for me sometimes to get out of my own head and to experience the product Mm. from these other people's perspective is just so hard that it's really helpful for me to just sort of peruse through these personas and be like oh yeah right this person thinks about it in this way and this person has these goals and this person you know is in this stage of their career and is looking for this type of da 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 and so I found it useful in that way I've also taken those personas and shared them with um, some people who have done some contract work for me. Oh, interesting. Okay. So and they th- was can... that a useful tool for you? 
Yeah. So for them, uh, I mean, I could have just done it verbally, but it was nice to have some sort of like an asset to pass along to those people that they could then read and refer back to. And again, I I even went through with, again, in working with this contractor, I believe it was like someone who was writing some content. And I I was actually referring to the personas by name. Hmm, I'm like, oh, does this look like what Cindy would do? Like, does this look like (laughs) da-da-da? Cindy, not Sandy. And so Cindy, (laughs) not Sandy, yes. And so it it was helpful because in that case, like, she was trying to understand, like, at what level should this content be? Mm -hmm. Like, how jargony should it be? What is this person's, like, total amount of time during the day? And how does this need to match? And what, like, competing things are they reading? And da-da-da-da-da. So to have that to give them to help answer those questions so they could do what they were doing a little bit more focused was was helpful and again we haven't used personas uh, not on any of the teams that i've been involved in on yammer Mm -hmm. that's just not part of our our process interesting Uh, i wonder if it was at one point i'll have to ask Hmm. i wanted to ask about a little note here he mentioned focus groups and how focus groups are not a great way to really understand the value of your product for particular people Mm -hmm. he talked a little bit about groupthink and kind of hinted and I've only ever heard people talk about focus groups as a bad idea. I've never once heard anyone say, this is a great idea. We should have a focus group for our product. And I've only ever heard people actively discourage them as well. And I'm wondering if there's some somewhere else, like some bit of content in the world that says focus groups are a good way to do product development Mm. because it comes up a lot in PM candidate interviews. I have a lot of times when I'm talking to a candidate about how would you validate if this is a good idea or not, they almost always suggest a focus group um, by some name or other. But that's like the the ideas that, that come up most often. And I'm wondering, have you seen any content anywhere that says, like, you should use focus groups? That's a great way to go about your user research. <laughs> so what's funny is the only thing, literally, my mind is, like, trying to come up with something other than this to say. But the only thing that I can think of is in, like, TV shows. There's, uh-huh. like, cheesy focus groups often. Did you see the, there's a TV show. It was, like, the Netflix show about the guy and the girl in L.A. And they're, like, dating, but it's, like, awkward. Mm. And then the roommate of the girl is this Australian lady and she runs focus groups for like a candy company, I think. And it's just like this hilarious, um, like these people are like yelling at her and throwing the food around and they're like, this tastes horrible. And she's there at the front of the room trying to like contain this like unruly group of people who are like, where's my $20 gift card? Right. Um, I definitely have, uh, that's literally the only thing that's coming to mind right now in terms of focus groups. The only thing that, that I think replaces that that I've done is like sit down and do just like an interview with one person mm-hmm. who you think might be like back when I was working on a completely different product like putting a listing on Craigslist mm-hmm. to like hey I'm like building this product that'll do this like mm-hmm. or, or not even that but like hey I'm like interested in people who do this for their job let's talk let's talk right but it's not at all I mean I guess you could the the sort of intent is the same I think of a focus group but it's a very different it's a very, very different, different experience yeah. yeah and I think the the one-on-one conversation you get a lot out of uh, on that note one of the things that I didn't see him mention about user research that I've been reading a lot about lately here is the the concept of using five conversations to validate a direction. Have you heard about this? 
the five whys no five user research conversations so there's uh, a lot of research out there right now about this <laughs> but um <laughs> where you will get about 80 to 90 percent of your user research value in the first five conversations oh, yeah you'll spot most of the trends you'll spot 80 to 90 percent of the trends at that point and the diminishing returns after five are pretty dramatic so that's kind of the point to cut it off it's individual conversations and not group think five conversations with five people but just Something interesting to, to think about. Today you learned. But I think we can start wrapping up. Yeah, so what is our conclusion? So you have a little, do we have a conclusion? No, we, I think we should just talk. We should just talk. Okay. Yeah. We talked at one point about doing pony oh, ratings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to do some ratings on this. Yeah, rating. I mean, yeah. I, li- I like this book. It was a little bit like, what is his, he, he actually has a term for it, this cognitive... Uh, Cognitive friction friction around, like, me trying to put my brain into 2004. Oh, interesting. And read this book. Yeah. Because I think a lot of this, like, a lot of the things that he's talking about, I mean, some of them don't make sense anymore. A lot of them also were interesting to think about, like, his ideas around what would be possible at this point, I think, Hmm. are also exposed a little bit. Hmm. Um, I feel like we failed him (laughs) for the most part. 12 years Um, later, we're still working on getting voice input. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But no, I mean, I think it was, I I enjoyed the book. I thought it was a pretty good introduction and baseline book that, I mean, it was not like harmful in any way to read. I don't know if someone were asking for like the best way to think about design Hmm. if I would recommend this book because it is talking about a time where he's like hard hard arguing for like design must come first and in like my interactions with most people these days like that's such a given it's like a known such a Um, given and so his yeah his like forcefulness around that just takes up a lot of time and takes up a lot of pages where I didn't need convincing on that definitely agree I think there's a really major point that he makes though that I don't see in other contemporary writing around how hard computers are right and how hard they don't have to be right and i think that he did a really good job i mean there's what a hundred or so pages of examples and commentary on that i would say i'd say a majority of the book is proving the point that computers are actually really difficult mm-hmm. and we're just living in this world where we're almost blinded to it because it's so much better to have a computer involved in so many things that we're willing to like overlook these downfalls and i think he does a really amazing job explaining how this is one outcome that we're living in right now but it, it's not the one we have to live in and I think that is still very important yeah yeah no I I appreciated his his ability to extract himself from like what he knows the constraints are of his role Mm -hmm. and like envision this future that he does think is possible and like to actually argue strongly toward that future being something that is possible and that we should all strive for and we should not just aim for the local maximum yeah so who do you think this book is best suited for? Who do you think gets the most out of this book? I mean, I think it would be someone who has already developed like a strong stance around the importance of design and building product. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, like if you did not, you might actually follow and like believe what he's saying around like design is never first and like we have to change that. It's like not true today. Um, right. And so I think it's someone who has some experience working either as a product manager or as a designer or even as an engineer and just wants to understand a little bit better around the importance of design and how to make how how and why it should be closer to the core of building product. So we would recommend this for uh, users, or users, <laughs> we'd recommend this for readers who are already working in tech 
and it's maybe an empathy piece for design and engineering. Mm-hmm. I think it's an empathy piece on both sides. Yeah, and then also I do think, yeah, somebody who is some sort of like a manager or somebody who's working with engineers and designers, but who has like a little bit of experience mm-hmm. actually building products because otherwise I think it would be a bit a bit much. Three out of five ponies? Three out of five ponies. Um, 3.5? Three out of five ponies with bows in their hair. Yeah, maybe I, I may be on the three side. On the three. Yeah, three, three and a half feels a bit much. I feel like, yeah, it was good. I feel like the, even, the structure was like pretty good. I felt that he did spend a little bit too much time like hammering home some of his points. Mm. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with three. Yeah, I think in its day it was probably a five out of five. Yeah. And I think today it's a three out of five. Yeah. With bows in their with hair. With bows. Ponies, <laughs> three ponies with bows. A little, little bit of extra. <laughs> little flair. Yeah, a little flair. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for... Yeah, great point. <laughs> Enjoy. Thanks for the chat. Joining this conversation. Mm-hmm.